Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. In 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation was hailed joyously by thousands of Negro slaves. Glory, glory, hallelujah, his truth is marching on. But almost 100 years later, Negroes in many parts of the United States were still forced by law to live under a system of segregation. They had to use separate public facilities, sit in separate sections on buses and trains, and go to different schools. Then one day in 1950, a small eight-year-old Negro girl named Linda Carroll Brown, who lived in Topeka, Kansas, decided to go to a school five blocks from her home instead of walking through the railroad yards and taking a bus to a school 21 blocks away. But when she tried to get admitted, she was told, You can't attend this school. It's for white children. The law states that you must go to a separate but equal school for Negroes. It was a scene that had often taken place. But this time, Linda's father, Oliver Brown, decided to fight for his daughter's right to attend the same school as the white children. Eventually, the Brown's case, along with four other similar cases, reached the United States Supreme Court, which was faced with this question. Does segregation of children in public schools solely on the basis of race, even though the physical facilities may be equal, deprive the children of the minority group of equal educational opportunities? The court's answer was, We believe that it does. We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. This unanimous ruling by the United States Supreme Court known as the Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, was made on May 17, 1954. It directly reversed the Plessy versus Ferguson decision made by the Supreme Court in 1896, which ruled that separate but equal accommodations did not violate the 14th Amendment. It had taken nearly 60 years to declare that doctrine unconstitutional. During that time, in spite of attempts in the courts to re-examine the doctrine, segregation by law continued to exist in 21 states and the District of Columbia. In 1941, the fight against segregation gained new momentum when thousands of Negro Americans fought in World War II. Negroes in the United States, as well as those returning from the war, objected strongly to the segregation laws. We've been fighting Hitler because he believed in a superior master race, and we believe everyone is equal. But I can't send my children to the same school as white children. What kind of equality is that? It's not equality. 
That old separate but equal doctrine goes back to 1896. Things are different now. Ah, yeah, you, you said it, man. Yeah, that's right, man. That's right. We can see to it. Things were indeed different. By the early 1950s, the Browns were not the only Negroes suing in the courts for their children's right to attend the same schools as white children. In 1952, along with the Browns case, four other similar cases were appealed by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People to the Supreme Court after the lower courts had upheld the separate but equal doctrine. Three involved segregated schools in the states, as did the Browns case. One, which dealt with segregated schools in the District of Columbia, Washington, D.C., had to be considered separately because that area was under federal jurisdiction. The nine judges of the United States Supreme Court had to consider many complicated questions in the segregated schools' cases. Is there historical evidence which shows the intentions of those who framed and ratified the 14th Amendment with respect to its impact on racial segregation in schools. What about the fact that public opinion has changed because there is more knowledge of human psychology and emotional development? If the court finds that racial segregation in the schools does violate the 14th Amendment, what kind of decree should be issued to end the segregation? The Supreme Court started its deliberations in 1952. Elaborate briefs were prepared on the history and background of the 14th Amendment. Sworn testimony from psychological and sociological experts was studied, and some of the most talented and eloquent lawyers in the country appeared before the high tribunal. Tension grew as the months passed and Americans waited for the court's crucial decision. Finally, two years later, the day arrived, Monday, May 17th, 1954. That morning, Associate Justice Robert H. Jackson, recovering from a heart attack, left his hospital bed so that all nine justices would be present in the court when the decision was read. At 12.52 on May 17, 1954, 91 years after the Emancipation Proclamation, the newly appointed Chief Justice, Earl Warren, began to read the unanimous opinion of the United States Supreme Court given in Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas. The opinion opened by setting forth the background of the cases of the Negro children, the plaintiffs. These cases come from the states of Kansas, South Carolina, Virginia, and Delaware. In each of the cases, minors of the Negro race seek the aid of the courts in obtaining admission to the public schools of their community on a non-segregated basis. In each instance, they had been denied admission to schools attended by white children under laws requiring or permitting segregation according to race. This segregation was alleged to deprive the plaintiffs of the equal protection of the laws under the 14th Amendment. Chief Justice Warren went on to state that the court had carefully studied the circumstances surrounding the adoption of the 14th Amendment in 1868 in an effort to discover the intent of the amendment in regard to schools. The result was inconclusive, one reason being the status of public education at that time. In the South, the movement toward free common schools supported by general taxation had not yet taken hold. 
Education of white children was largely in the hands of private groups. Education of Negroes was almost non-existent, and practically all of the race were illiterate. In fact, any education of Negroes was forbidden by law in some states. Justice Warren compared this situation in 1868 with the conditions in 1954. Today, in contrast, many Negroes have achieved success in the arts and sciences, as well as in the business and professional world. It is true that public school education at the time of the amendment had already advanced further in the North. Even in the North, the conditions of public education did not approximate those existing today. The curriculum was usually rudimentary. Ungraded schools were common in rural areas. The school term was but three months a year in many states, and compulsory school attendance was virtually unknown. As a consequence, it is not surprising that there should be so little in the history of the 14th Amendment relating to its intended effect on public education. Pursuing the history of the 14th Amendment, Justice Warren pointed out that since the Plessy-Ferguson decision in 1896, which established the separate but equal doctrine, there had been many cases in court involving that doctrine. But in the present cases, there was a new factor. Here, there are findings that the Negro and white schools involved have been equalized or are being equalized with respect to buildings, curricula, qualifications and salaries of teachers, and other tangible factors. Our decision, therefore, cannot turn on merely a comparison of these tangible factors in the Negro and white schools involved. We must look instead to the effect of segregation itself on public education. To do this, Justice Warren continued, it was necessary to consider the purpose of public education in light of its present place in American life in the year 1954. Today, education is perhaps the most important function of state and local governments. It is required in the performance of our most basic public responsibilities, even service in the armed forces. It is the very foundation of good citizenship. Today, it is a principal instrument in awakening the child to cultural values, in preparing him for later professional training, and in helping him to adjust normally to his environment. In these days, it is doubtful that any child may reasonably be expected to succeed in life if he is denied the opportunity of an education. Such an opportunity is a right which must be made available to all on equal terms. Next, Justice Warren, delivering the unanimous opinion of the United States Supreme Court, answered the vital question at stake. Does segregation of children in public schools solely on the basis of race, even though the physical facilities may be equal, deprive the children of the minority group of equal educational opportunities? We believe that it does. To support this answer, Justice Warren cited two court cases involving the damaging psychological effects of segregation on Negro graduate students. How much greater, he said, would these effects be on younger students? Such considerations apply with added force to children in grade and high schools. To separate them from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race 
generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone. Justice Warren next quoted from the findings in the Kansas case by a lower court, which nonetheless had ruled against the plaintiff. Segregation of white and colored children in public schools has a detrimental effect upon the colored children. The impact is greater when it has the sanction of the law, for the policy of separating the races is usually interpreted as denoting the inferiority of the Negro group. A sense of inferiority affects the motivation of a child to learn. Segregation with the sanction of law, therefore, has a tendency to retard the educational and mental development of Negro children and to deprive them of some of the benefits they would receive in a racially integrated school system. Justice Warren stated that this finding was amply supported by modern authorities. In a footnote, he listed such works as Kenneth B. Clark's The Effect of Prejudice and Discrimination on Personality Development, surveys of social science opinion on the psychological effects of enforced segregation, and many other such authoritative works. The United States Supreme Court came to the conclusion of its unanimous opinion in the Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka decision with these words spoken by Chief Justice Warren. We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. Therefore, we hold that the plaintiffs are, by reason of the segregation complained of, deprived of the equal protection of the laws guaranteed by the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court decision in the school segregation cases has been called the most important American governmental act since the Emancipation Proclamation. Although many Americans hailed it with joy and warm support, there was also opposition. Some Southerners labeled the day Black Monday, and a group of senators and representatives from 11 Southern states presented a Southern manifesto to Congress attacking the decision. We regard the decision of the Supreme Court in the school cases as a clear abuse of judicial power. The original Constitution does not mention education, and neither does the 14th Amendment or any other amendment. Other critics complained that the Supreme Court decision did not rest on law, but on the court's personal views in the field of psychology. To this, supporters of the court replied, that the court was simply reflecting the dominant moral values of the American community. The Supreme Court recognized the difficulties presented all over the nation by its decision. The judges knew that approximately one half of the Negro children lived in the South and faced a situation vastly different from those in the North and West. Therefore, a year after the Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka decision, the court met and decreed that the new rule should be carried out by the federal district courts and that implementation should go forward with all deliberate speed. Integration of the public schools moved with more deliberation than speed. The Supreme Court decision had invalidated laws in 17 states, all below the Mason-Dixon line, that compelled segregation and laws in four other states and the District of Columbia 
that permitted segregation. The problems in trying to achieve complete integration of all the public schools in the United States are still vast. But the mandate of the United States Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas in 1954 is clear. In the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. We shall overcome. We shall that we